0: Let's take our Bibles and turn just for a couple minutes to Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, let's study God's Word for a couple minutes, and then we're going to pray a little bit at the end. I was having a great conversation last night with our middle school youth group, and um, they were asking some very awesome questions and some very deep questions about the Lord, and One of the big questions they asked last night was how do we know what makes christianity unique from all other world religions and i was like hmm okay that's not in my notes but let's talk about that so i gave them my best theological answer about how our faith is the only one in which you don't have to work for your salvation and that god intervened through christ to take away our sins and 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 forgive us. And then I gave my biblical answer about the unity and integrity of the text over thousands of years, and 40 different writers, and how there are more original manuscripts of the Bible than of the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. And then I gave my logical answer about the historical proof of Jesus living, and the fact that the body's never been found, and, and, and that I forgot to mention at the time that there were hundreds of people that saw Jesus after the resurrection and testified to him, and, and I gave all those answers, and I was sat back very satisfied, like, wow, I really, really knocked it out of the park, and that, and they're like, yeah, but how do we know? And what was great about that, and I didn't take offense to that, is they kept wanting additional proof, and they wanted additional proof so they could be assured in their faith and so that they can defend the truth. And as I thought about that last night and then more this morning, I thought, you know, our faith is, is so unique and that there is a preponderance of historical and theological and logical evidence that gives us confidence in what we believe. But I also love how personal our faith is. And that's what hit me this morning as I started to pray and study for tonight is, is that there are some very personal and very um, uh, distinctive provisions that God makes for us, especially as it relates to prayer, and I want to just spend a couple minutes tonight in three verses in Hebrews chapter four, because these three verses highlight um, three of those characteristics, three of those distinctive provisions and privileges that God gives to us, and and my prayer and my hope is that as we study these, and we're going to take them apart very simply tonight, this is, this is just basic exegesis, but as we study these, I really pray that it's going to encourage us and that it's going to stir us to, to always want to pray more, okay? So let's read chapter 4, Hebrews, um, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession... For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one, a high priest, Jesus, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, here's the, the bottom line, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, as I said, there are just three provisions here that I want to highlight and maybe write them down or just interact with the text a little bit because I think we need to constantly be reminded of what a privilege we have when we pray. You know, I think all of us are are kind of used to it, that it's easy, we need to pray, we just pray. But, But what's happening and what has God provided for us to be able to do that? So the first distinctive in this passage is in verse 14, and that's that Jesus has personally interceded on our behalf and restore the relationship that was broken by sin. Now this was a this was a personal thing because when you look at verse 14 it says that Jesus is the high priest once and for all. And because it's Jesus and his work is final, there's no more mediator needed. Now in the Old Testament system, and remember this is written to the Jews, so the writer at this point is giving the The theological basis for faith in Christ. Just as Romans is for the Gentiles, here's why you should believe. Here's what salvation is. Here's justification by faith. Here's holiness that's imparted to us. All that, that was to the Greeks. That was to the Gentiles. Hebrews is just the opposite. It's to the Jews. So everything's written from a Jewish perspective. So if you talk to the Gentiles about the high priest, they're like, yeah, I get it. The Jews have a high priest in the temple and but that doesn't really affect us because we don't have a high priest. When the writer wrote to the Jews and he said, high priest, everybody said, aha, I know what a high priest is because we go to the temple, the high priest is there. And they knew all the way back to Old Testament history that when the when the priesthood was established in Leviticus, that there was a high priest. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would go in and he would take the sins of the people and he would put blood on the mercy seat of God, which was on the ark, which represented the presence of God. Remember the tabernacle, presence of God would come down in a cloud and the priest would go in, the high priest would go in and he'd sprinkle blood of the sacrificial spotless lamb on to the mercy seat, the Bema seat, and that would be atonement for sin. So that was the system all the way up until Jesus comes. Now that system, now that's done because it's insufficient. It didn't accomplish anything because you kept having to go back year after year, right? Oh yeah, it's day of atonement again. Now the high priest has got to go back in, sprinkle the blood. Next year, guess what? There's another day of atonement. Got to go back in, sprinkle the blood. Next year, another day of atonement. Jesus says, nope, once and for all, it's done. I'm the high priest. I'm the one by my own spotless shed blood as the spotless lamb who sacrificed for sin, who becomes the Passover. My blood now covers all of it. There's no more confession to a priest. There's no more intercession by somebody else or following the right steps so you'll be right with God. Now, I'm the high priest, And I'm the one that's going to forgive the sin through my sacrifice. And I'm the one, verse 14, that's going to restore the relationship so you're right with God. So the writer of Hebrews says, because Jesus is the high priest, look at the second part of the verse, therefore let us hold fast to our confession. What does that mean? It means because of what Jesus has done, don't slip away from your conviction, don't slip away from your faith. Don't let what God has created and produced in you and in me slide. Look at the words that he used. He says, hold fast to it. And I thought of the illustration today. If my child was about to fall off a cliff and I grabbed their hand, I would not let them slip. There is no way I would go over before they would. But they're not going to slip out of my hand. Now, when you look, that's the same concept in verse 14 where he says, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our maturation, when it comes to our spiritual life, which is our whole life, don't let it slip. Hold fast to it. It is your life. It's everything. If you let it go, there's devastation. So hold fast to it. And this is the personal privilege and power of having Jesus as our high priest, that he completely understands our lives. This is in verse 15. He lived as one of us. He's not just detached. He's not some God in an ivory tower that says, ha ha ha, do this, this is me, I'm in control. He is in control. He's completely sovereign. He's Lord over everything. But this passage says he's not detached from my life. He knows me. And he knows you, not only because we were created in his image, but because Jesus came and experienced everything we experience. He went through every temptation that we go through and so much more. And yet the passage says he did it without sin. He didn't fail. He didn't waver one bit in completing what he came here to do. And because of that complete identification with us, and because of the total association with everything that we experience as humans and as believers, it means he's not only a gracious God because he went to those lengths to save us, but it also means that he's an approachable God. Jesus is willing to take on this humble position, uh, Philippians 2 says. He's willing to lay aside his rights and to become human and to be part of us. And because of that, he proves once and for all that he wants us to know him and he wants to be in our presence and he wants us to be in his presence, which means that prayer is one of God's highest ideals. Because everything Jesus did screams relationship everything that jesus did says god wants to be in restored relationship with us and what better way to foster a relationship and nurture a relationship than personal communication so much of our culture right now we're connected right because we have our cell phones text phone email skype twitter facebook all that junk right and and experts on sociology say we're more detached than ever Because what have we lost? We've lost personal communication. It's so much easier to text than call, right? Unless you have an old phone. It's so much easier to just shoot off a text. There, I don't have to get on the phone for 10 minutes and talk and explain myself. I can just shoot it out in a text. So, so the more we become detached socially, the, the more there's a lack of honest communication, honest face-to-face communication. And if you don't believe that, go to a restaurant tonight on your way home and sit and watch people. Most people are at the table doing what? Looking at their phones, right? Jesus says... I want to have fellowship with you. I know your needs. I know your fears. I know your desires. I know your temptations. I've lived through all of them. And it's personal between you and me. Then he says, second, to make this happen, look at the next verse, verse 15. I've given you direct access to my throne of grace. Now, this was pictured. Remember when Jesus died? What happened at the veil in the temple? It's split in two, right? Top to bottom. In other words, God is is figuratively, the picture is, he's just opening it up, and he's opening up access to the Holy of Holies. So at any time, we can go into the presence of the Lord, we can go without hesitation, we can go without fear, we can go without wondering if he's going to receive us and hear us. That's the privilege and the power of prayer. You know, I was thinking today, if you are going to meet the president, you've got to go through a lot of protocols to get to the Oval Office. You can't just dial up the White House. Yes, I'd like to meet with the president on Tuesday about 4 o'clock. That would be really the best time for me. I just got a couple things I want to run by him. And, and um, yeah, that would be great if you could just set that up. Anybody think you could get through to Trump that way? What happens? You have to be invited and then once that happens, you're going to meet him at his timetable, at his location, at his convenience. And you're not going to be able to just show up to the front door of the White House and knock and say, i got an appointment with the president at 4 o'clock on Tuesday. They're going to, they're going to vet you. Social, uh, 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 Secret Service is going to look at you. Homeland Security is going to look at your background. Maybe the FBI, maybe the CIA will investigate you and vet you and... There'll be all kinds of background checks. And then once you get there you're gonna to have to go through uh, multiple security checks. You're gonna to have to walk through a couple different uh, metal detectors. There are gonna be a bunch of people you have to see before you actually get to the Oval Office. And when you go to the Oval Office, somebody is gonna escort you, probably a couple Secret Service people, are gonna escort you back to the President. And then once you get in the Oval Office, there's gonna be a very specific and very limited time to meet him because he's on a tight schedule. And if you and I fail any of those requirements, or if we try to walk in carrying an Uzi, or, or if we're late in any way, there aren't going to be any uh, other options. No excuses are going to be good enough. You just won't be able to see the president. Now, look back at verse 15. Anytime we want to talk to the Lord, anytime we want to go to the one who's the God of the universe, who holds everything in his hands, we have unlimited unrestrained access to him. There are no barriers because Jesus has removed them. There are no background checks because he knows us and calls uh, us his children. There are absolutely no restraints on time because he says, I love it when you come into my presence and your prayers are so precious to me that I hold them in bowls so I can sniff them. Ah, it's wonderful. Paul Rhodes prayed to me today and that's precious to me. And when we pray to him, access is instantaneous. There's no delay. There's no time where God says, hold on a second, Paul. Just a second. I'm dealing with, you know, like a trillion things right now. So if you could just wait five minutes, I'll give you my full attention. How many times do I put off my kids? Uh, Hold on just a second. I'm in the middle of a call. Can you wait just a second? God never does that. So when we call on his name... You remember, you remember Elijah when he's on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. You remember that story, First First Kings eighteen. And they're, he says, you guys go first. And they're yelling and cutting themselves and crying out and screaming and calling out for Baal to answer them for six hours. And Elijah's just kind of sitting there like, you know, this is, this is a cool show, guys. And, and you're calling out to an idol. He's not going to answer you. And Elijah kind of mocks them and says, Where, you know, is he on vacation? Is he in the restroom? What's going on here? Why are you guys calling for six hours and you don't get an answer? And then you remember what happens? He pours water on the sacrifice, and he says, God, show them that you're God. And instantly, it says, fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice, and it was so powerful that it ate the rocks. We have that same access. We have that same power tonight. And I don't know about you, but I need more fire from heaven. And I need God to stoke my heart, and I need God to stoke my faith, and I need God to stoke me to a deeper maturity in my relationship with the Lord. And in a couple minutes, we're going to pray for that. We're going to ask the Lord to do that. What's powerful about verse 15 is that at any time, you and I can go directly to God, and the veil is open, and we can walk right up to his presence, and we can walk up with confidence and desire the fact that jesus interceded to restore that relationship should give us such a determination to stay close to him and the fact that he identifies us with in verse 15 that should give us a discipline now to walk in holiness and to put off sin and then in verse 16 he invites us to come and receive mercy and that should just fill us with a fresh desire to spend more time in his presence. So look at the last verse, and then we're going to pray. The last characteristic, the third characteristic, is that we can be confident. We can be confident, that's the key word, to go near to him because it is certain that he will hear us. Now look at that one phrase in verse 16, because the writer, whoever it is, I still think it's Paul, but we don't know. The writer strongly exhorts us. Therefore, in other words, because of verse 14, because of verse 15, therefore, conclusion, because of that, let us draw near with confidence. If you grew up on the King James, what were the words? Come boldly, right? Same exact thought in the Greek. So come boldly, full of confidence, To the throne of grace. Now, one of the one of the most amazing and and maybe easy to take for granted realities about prayer is that the Lord hears our prayers and responds. In Deuteronomy 4 7, Moses said to Israel, What nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, our God, whenever we call on him? In Jeremiah 29, the Lord says, You will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. In Psalm 91, he tells us, you will call on me, and I will answer. I will be with you in trouble, I will rescue you, and I will honor you. In Jeremiah 33, he says, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you don't know. Now, those are not the words, those are not the verbs of an indifferent God. That, that's not somebody we just hope when we pray that, Oh Lord, I'm going to pray to you tonight. Maybe you'll pay attention to me and I'm kind of I'm kind of hoping that that you're going to show some sort of mercy on me and boy, I'm just taking a flyer here but but by kind of calling on you and and I just I I hope you're up there. This is the assurance of a God who loves us more than we can imagine. And he promises us, "When you call on me, I will provide" You have direct access to me anytime you need. You walk right up to my throne and I will show you mercy and I will give you help whenever you need it. Now, I don't think that it's unfair. Look back at the verse just for a second as we're about to pray. I don't think it's unfair or an overstatement to say that very few of us fully understand the depth and sufficiency of these three verses. And I don't believe, I'll admit it myself, I don't believe we fully grasp or appropriate the truth of verse 16. But after studying it tonight, I really pray that we have a greater understanding and a greater desire to approach the throne of grace with boldness and with confidence. Because that's what God tells us to do. And if we go to him timidly, if we go to him kind of uh, without assurance, without any real strength, then we're not doing what he's called us to do. And we're not doing what Christ has produced in us. So our prayer, and you guys are seasoned believers, but our prayer needs to be bold. It needs to be confident. When we go to him, we need to go as his children with joy and with strength and with courage and we need to ask him to stir us. And here's how I want to close this time tonight. I, I, I want to pray that God will stoke in us, right here, a fresh faith. And I want to pray that God will stoke in us a fresh fire to fill us with his power. Because I don't know about you, and we prayed about this a little bit earlier for the congregation. I don't know about you, but I need a fresh fire from the Lord. You remember Timothy writes to Paul. We know that he wrote this because Paul responded. And I think Timothy kind of said, you know what, I'm I'm kind of burned out. I'm kind of tired. I'm kind of weary. It's hard to walk for the Lord, especially in a secular culture. We've all felt that, right? We've all felt that sense of spiritual burnout where we just are weary. And what does Paul say to him? Timothy, stir up the fire. Stir up the fire. And listen, as I said earlier in my prayer, revival and and the work of God's church started with a small group of people that got together and prayed. So if God starts to stir our hearts and starts to stoke that fire in us, we have no limits on what God can do because he says, when you come to me with confidence, I will show you mercy and I'll help you in your time of need.